The mental health effects of the COVID-19 pandemic are hitting people of all ages, with the latest research finding that three in 10 millennials feel lonely either often or always. Lockdown life and social distancing has added a healthy dose of stress and anxiety to an already precarious mix. If you're feeling particularly isolated and on edge, science says it may not be a personal shortcoming, but actually a natural disposition instead. And there's an explanation for it in our brains. Newly identified patterns of brain activity reveal why some people are more prone to anxiety and feelings of isolation. While scientists may not have a solution just yet, they can finally offer an explanation, which is a good start. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about the latest research explaining why lonely people feel so isolated from those around them. Highlighting a phenomenon known as a self-other gap, researchers say loneliness may not necessarily be a consequence of your living circumstance, but your own state of mind. Our second story attempts to explain why some people are more susceptible to anxiety than others. With the help of a strange new study on marmosets, researchers narrowed in on a clear neurological reason why some of us are prone to panic while others remain chilled out. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now... How a study on the brains of lonely people reveal why you can still feel alone, even if you're in a crowded room. You know, as social distancing and self-quarantine become more common to prevent the spread of COVID-19. We're missing genuine connection, human connection, isolation. It's a hard thing to do. It brings, you know, loneliness for people as well. So there's an unintended consequence. Um, we know that that's a big problem already. People are losing face-to-face contact with others. That increases the risk for problems with loneliness. The thing we're all doing, hopefully, to keep ourselves safe, which is social distancing, can have an adverse health outcome, which is loneliness. And lately, I think like many people, I've been feeling lonely. If you feel lonely, you're not alone. According to a May 2020 survey from YouGov, about three in 10 millennials feel always or often lonely. We didn't need a global pandemic to get us there either. These results mirror the findings of the same survey given back in July 2019. But perhaps what we did need was a better understanding of what's on its way to becoming a social pandemic. As social distancing becomes a disease prevention policy, COVID-19 may be on its way to heightening an already precarious situation. But this perceived gap or disconnection between ourselves and others, also known as a self-other gap, might also affect how our brain perceives the various people or relationships in our lives. According to a study published June 2020 in the journal J Neurosci, loneliness alters how the brain represents social maps, patterns of brain activity that represent relationships. The study evaluated 43 college students, and the more distant someone was within the social network, the more different neural patterns became. The research team says this pattern of brain activity could explain why lonely people feel so isolated from those around them, whoever they may be. Here to fill us in on what's going on in the actual brain and how brain scans can help us better understand the loneliness we can't always otherwise explain, is Inverse's Emma Batuel. Hey, Emma. Hey, Tanya. Thanks for having me. Sure. So 
this uh, phenomenon where people feel isolated from others, this self-other gap, what do we know about how often this happens? You know, are there patterns? Do age, sex, socioeconomic situations generally factor in? Um, what are the basics in terms of just what we can look to as, as far as how often this happens? Yeah, loneliness is actually a really interesting thing because there are some socioeconomic or demographic patterns that are associated with loneliness. So there have been a couple studies that look at that. There was one 2012 study on um, about uh, 3,000 citizens in the UK, or more like uh, 2,300 actually. Um, and they found that people who were below the age of 25 or above the age of 65 tended to have the highest levels of loneliness. Um, there have been other studies that link it to things like um, so, like having a lower socioeconomic status, um, being a woman, or, having, um, or living in a nursing home tends to be a consistent one. But there's also a bigger understanding of loneliness in that it's not really about who you are or where you live or what conditions uh, you're under. You might have a really strong support network and people who really care about you and still feel lonely. So there's this definition of loneliness that stems from this feeling of social disconnection. That's sort of the idea that there's even if you're around people, you'll still feel alone. Um, and that's kind of the operating definition of loneliness that the authors in this study were looking to uh, understand. Right. Yeah. That that social aspect, you know, that social feeling is a familiar one for a lot of people have obviously experienced loneliness at one point or another. But what does the latest research say about what's physically happening in our brains when we experience loneliness? Because that, that's what's new here, right? Yeah, so it's this is a pretty cool study. So it's like a lot of the these studies. It's done on, on college students. So it's on a pretty small sample size of 43. But they took people who, uh, some of whom rated themselves as, as quite lonely, and they tried to figure out sort of where how their brains uh, were categorizing their relationships with other people. Basically, what they found was when people who weren't lonely, people who feel like they're really well supported, think of somebody who's close to them, there's a pattern of brain activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, an area of the brain that's really involved in social cognition. And that pattern, you could think about it like a constellation almost, overlaps a lot with the pattern of brain activity that is triggered when they think of themselves. And the further out you get in a social circle, so somebody who's not your close friend but is rather an acquaintance, that pattern overlaps slightly less. And somebody who's a, um, a celebrity, actually, they used in this case, somebody who you'd be familiar with but isn't you know, a, a close friend, obviously, that person overlaps even less. For lonely people, there was a really different pattern of activity. So to start off with, there was less activity in general in the medial prefrontal cortex. But also, when they thought about people who were technically close to them, like family or someone they might rate as a close friend, that pattern of brain activity didn't overlap as much as the pattern of brain activity that would have been triggered if they were thinking of themselves. But what was really interesting is when they looked at that brain activity that was activated between the close friends and the people who, so celebrities, people who aren't really close to you at all, those patterns lined up more. So that sort of suggests that they see other people as more alike than they do themselves and, and a close friend, which was sort of an interesting demonstration of this gap between yourself and someone else that showed up in the study. So in being able to actually see this, you know, on a brain scan and identifying a brain mechanism, are researchers then closer to, you know, targeting some kind of solution or aid for loneliness or at least better understanding how to treat issues like chronic social disconnection, et cetera? Where do we kind of go from here, do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't know if it's really about a treatment for loneliness so much as it is about understanding what loneliness really is. Hopefully they find a way. Maybe we discover that there is a way uh, to treat it. Maybe not. I think that it's one of those things that's more uh, an explanation for a way that a lot of people feel. So it's even if you're, you know, surrounded by friends and family, you can still really feel alone. And that's maybe not a fantasy. Maybe it's sort of part of in your reality, too. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Listeners can head to Inverse.com for the full story. In the meantime, Emma, thanks as always. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Like loneliness, anxiety is not a one-size-fits-all experience. When faced with the same situation or stress, some people remain calm while others panic. Now, due to a strange new study on marmosets, researchers are one step closer to understanding why. Everyone reacts differently to stressful situations. And the anxiety from COVID virus has brought out a sense of anxiety. Many of you at home may be feeling a little stressed and anxious as a result of stress and anxiety caused by the coronavirus. It's getting worse because now we even have anxieties around. A sense that this could go on for a while. Anxiety is not wrong. And this is the time when anxiety makes a lot of sense. In the modern world, we're all going to have a little bit. It turns out it's not you. All the while, it was your brain's emotion processing center causing or calming those spikes of anxiety. And while COVID-19 has jolted an already anxious state of mind for many, like any processing center, some operations run smoother than others. Like these centers with better management in place, perhaps our anxiety would be in for a smoother transaction. However, in the past, scientists didn't exactly know how the management of serotonin systems in certain brain regions influenced how each one of us experiences anxiety. To get to the bottom of it all, researchers examined marmosets, small monkeys that also show similar trait anxiety-like behavior to humans sensitive to medication that treats anxiety, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, more commonly known as SSRIs. In this anxious monkey experiment, they ultimately claimed to narrow in on anxiety's relationship to the brain. Do these findings then suggest that targeting the right area of the brain might speed up better treatment for anxiety overall? There's a lot to break down and get to. So joining us now is Inverse's Ali Patillo. Hey, Ali, welcome back. Thanks, Tanya. So one of your sources called this a natural disposition. Do we know why some people may have this high amygdala serotonin transporter expression? There it is. Um, Is there a nature nurture balance? Is it purely genetic? How exactly does this um, break down? I mean, anxiety and the tendency or propensity to be anxious is shaped by, you know, a very complicated range of factors, both environmental and genetic. You know, anxiety can be contributed to by underlying health issues, from stress histories, from trauma. All of these things can make somebody be more likely to be kind of highly reactive to a certain event while another person is able to remain super calm or doesn't have that kind of anxious response. And so in this study, they were really looking at whether there were functional brain differences and structure differences that were driving this tendency to be highly anxious or have quote unquote trait anxiety is what they call it in the study. And that's what they say they found. They say they found a clear neurological basis for this vulnerability. 
And it's important to note this experiment was done in marmosets, in small monkeys that are kind of stand-ins for humans. We don't know how serotonin signaling influences anxiety in humans if it operates the same way. But in theory, the idea is that if you can target these kind of brain structure differences and function differences, that could open up a whole new way to treat anxiety. Because it all has to do with the brain's emotions processing center, right? Like serotonin is obviously well known as the, you know, happy chemical that regulates our mood. That was sort of the core of this whole experiment. What were researchers attempting to find out in examining the serotonin system of marmosets the way they did in this experiment? Yeah, so the serotonin signaling system is quite complicated, but it can be kind of boiled down to the idea that when serotonin transporters are high, serotonin levels, which are kind of the happy chemical, are low. And it's interesting because common anxiety and depression medications, so SSRIs, actually target these transporters. And so the idea is that you can manipulate this serotonin system to then modulate anxiety. And the researchers were trying to create a more effective and potentially faster medication because for a lot of people, these SSRIs don't work. Yeah, or they take, you know, several weeks uh, to even find out whether or not they work. So, I mean, in looking to just make this whole process effective, how does one attempt to test monkeys' anxiety, try to calm them down, and then figure out what part of the brain actually does this? That's a, a quite a tall order. Yeah, so it's interesting because the experiment itself might be familiar to neuroscientists, but I found it so interesting and even a little bit strange. I mean, I mean, they they basically rounded up a group of these marmosets, which are, um, as you kind of touched on, small monkeys that have brains that have large similarities to human brains. Um, And they also exhibit similar anxiety-like behavior to humans um, that can be manipulated by anxiety medications like SSRIs. So they rounded up these kind of human stand-ins, these little monkeys. Um, They put each monkey alone in a cage and exposed the animals to uh, an unfamiliar human wearing a mask. Um, So this was kind of a stressful condition. Um, Uh The human stood about a foot and a half away from the cage and maintained eye contact with the monkey for two minutes. And through this entire experiment, the researchers tracked how the monkeys reacted, both before the human came in, during that kind of exchange, and after the human intruder left. They saw how the monkey moved around the cage, whether they were kind of moved back and were a little bit avoidant, or whether they moved closer to the human, whether they made noises, whether they kind of bobbed their heads or or um, bodies around, and all these kind of cues can indicate um, anxiety-like behavior by the monkeys or highly reactive behavior. Then after this experiment, um, the researchers euthanized the animals, humanely, of course, and then they analyzed different brain regions. And this process revealed that one brain region in particular was really critical. So the amygdala, which is the emotion processing center, And they found that monkeys who were most reactive, who were most anxious, they had high levels of gene expressions for serotonin transporters in this brain region. Um, So this really taken together, it suggests that serotonin signaling in the amygdala um, may be driving this anxious behavior. So, you know, this is 
these are not human beings and this was a limited study, but is the hope that scientists can now better and more effectively create, you know, anti-anxiety medications by targeting these brain regions? Are we anywhere closer to that goal? We're definitely closer. We're still very far away. But the team actually tested this kind of idea directly. Um, So they took a different group of highly anxious or highly reactive little monkeys, and they tested what happened when they directly infused SSRI medication into those monkeys' amygdala. So into that really particularly important region of their brain using a tiny little tube. Then they repeated the human intruder test, put those monkeys back in a cage, had a human walk in, go through the same process, and they figured out how the monkeys were reacting. And after they had a direct infusion to that targeted area, the monkeys experienced immediate symptom relief, reduced levels of anxiety-related behaviors, They were calmer, basically. And of course, right now, you can't directly infuse SSRI medication um, into a human amygdala. We just don't have the capability to do that. But the idea is that if the same findings are seen in humans through multiple, multiple experiments, scientists may eventually be able to figure out a way to target the amygdala more directly And like we kind of touched on before, create a faster acting anxiety medication that could really change the lives of a lot of people dealing with this. If you head to inverse.com, there are some visuals that also help bring everything together in terms of what's going on in the brain. You can read more about the research as well. Ali Patillo will be covering the latest. In the meantime, Ali, thanks. Thanks so much, Tanya. Head to Inverse.com to read more about the latest research on how our brain affects our emotions. Click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.